Welcome to the Product Lab Podcast. I'm Mario Araujo, and I'm a B2B growth advisor and interim growth leader for B2B startups and scale-ups. I was an early employee of OutSystems and left when the valuation was close to 10 billion to 10B and later joined Software. You can find more about me at mariuaraujo.co or visit my side project at productledstack.co. Today, we'll have ID Gibson from Bill with us uh, as part of the PLG Fall Start series that explores the untold stories behind PLG implementations and failures. And we want to get into the weeds and get the learnings. We went deep into some phenomenal failures and learnings from Heidi and team. Uh, Examples would be, how did they deal with breaking their biggest revenue channel? How they go about fixing a 25% drop in revenues due to a hacky email solution they put in place? And also, how did they power through a transition from free trial to freemium that should have taken six months and took three years? Now imagine that this is a great episode full of insights. As usual, references will be added to the show notes. And uh, yeah, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this episode with Heidi. Thank you. Heidi, thank you so much for being here. This is going to be such an interesting conversation. I just remember you from uh, Reforge, so it's really an honor for me to have you here as a a guest. You've inspired me even before we planned this cast. And so anyways, I remember taking screenshots of your presentation and actually organizing a workshop around the case study that you presented when I, when I was there. So there you go. And we left a couple of people flabbergasted with how you were approaching analytics at the time. So thanks for being here. I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself to get us going. Mario, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Let's see. Uh, my name is Heidi Gibson, uh, and I've been doing product management um, pretty much since the age of the dinosaurs, back when we put software in boxes and like shipped it around. So I've seen a lot of things over those years. I've centered most of my career on consumer and small business software, and over the last 10 years, have been pretty exclusively building B2B SaaS software for small businesses. I'm currently the VP of product growth at Bill, uh, small business payments and back office software. And I've spent several years at GoDaddy and several other bigger companies and also some very tiny, tiny companies that where I was one of 10 people building software for small businesses. Weird fact about me, I had a career as a chef as well. I took time off my tech career and opened a restaurant and uh, was a chef. And I was cooking every day and wrote a couple cookbooks. And that's where a lot of my passion for small business specifically came from. And I also really specialized in growth. And my mantra about growth is helping more customers get more value from our products. So to me, it's not about extracting more value for the company. That's an an output if you do it well. But I push really hard on the mindset being, how can we deliver more value to more people? And in that way, create a situation where more customers want to give us their money. That's how I approach growth. Beautiful. It's good to have that in mind because it's also easy to, as, as quarters go by, to forget about that and really screw up a product or an onboarding journey or even a company strategy. But yeah, 
So speaking of um, screw-ups, uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll dive right in. I'd like to say that people that come here and share these stories, like the ones you're going to share, are, you know, it takes a lot of courage. So thank you for that. And also, it takes a certain amount of maturity because everyone says it's with failure that we learn. And in retrospecting and, and learning and taking, you know, the frameworks out and distilling the learnings and whatnot, but it's um, not easy. It's uh, easier said than done. So yeah, let's start with the first story that you bring us. Can you maybe share a little bit? I don't want to give any hints because you tell it much better than me. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to share a few stories about this and a little bit of a spoiler, which is I have learned the hard way that it is true that through failure, you get learnings, but also treating I've learned the hard way that sort of (laughs) celebrating your failures in a way or, or owning your failures and really looking for what can you learn from those failures is surprisingly a great way to grow your career. If you play the failures right, there's often a way to actually like I, I've gotten weirdly promoted through several failures. <laughs> wow, it takes good leadership for that as well. <laughs> so showing that taking the risk and being vulnerable really does pay off in the right environment. There are certainly companies that you know won't celebrate that failure, and I would argue those are not places you want to work. So take the risk, and hopefully it pays off. All right, into the first story. So I was at a very, I'll say a very large domain broker where I happen to work for some time, uh, the largest domain uh, website domain broker in the world. And I was responsible for the website builder product at the time. So this is small business, website builder, kind of a simple, our goal was a simple product where any small business owner could fairly easily build a website in a few hours for their business, think kind of Main Street USA, restaurants and hair salons and contractors and, you know, all sorts of things. Without coding or no coding question, no coding. Yeah. No code. You couldn't code if you wanted to, and you couldn't break it if you wanted to. It's really a fantastic product. Very, very proud of it. And uh, part of our growth strategies, part of our acquisition strategy for that website builder was because we had a a lot of small businesses of our, our target customer coming to our website looking to buy a domain, we knew that many of them were looking to buy a domain because they wanted to build a website on that domain. Where they might have been in their journey at the time was, oh, I need a domain. They may not have gotten as far as what website builder am I going to use or how am I going to build that website, but they were starting with a domain. So our strategy was, okay, let's cross-sell the website builder when they're buying their domain. And because they weren't necessarily ready to make that purchase decision, we developed a free trial model. So let's try and attach a a free trial to that domain and encourage them to try our website builder, build their website, and if they're happy with it, convert and pay us, right? So fairly straightforward strategy. So we had been executing that strategy for some time with some success. We were getting definitely some negative feedback from some customers in particular who maybe already had some domains. We weren't real sophisticated yet about, well, if they already had domains and had some websites, we'd attach another free trial when they bought another domain. So it's pretty common that some businesses will buy 
10 domains, right? A number of domains, maybe they're for different businesses, maybe they're for the same, maybe they have different uses for those domains. Sometimes they're just sitting on them in case they become valuable. Sometimes they're actively reselling them. There's a lot of different use cases in there beyond having a domain for a website for your business. So we were experiencing some negative backlash in in different segments as we did this because they were annoyed with this experience and felt like we were sort of shoving this website builder down their throats. So we had um, kind of backed off in really in attaching this experience as a result of some negative feedback that was coming through like the CX channel, um, support channel and, you know, and things like that and NPS. And we're trying to find a way to, you know, achieve our goals and find the right customers to expose this product to without annoying the customers who didn't want it. And we're having a hard time kind of finding that right balance. But in the middle of this, my team responsible for growth of the website builder, we ran an experiment or we tried to run an experiment where we tried to get fancy about at the end of the purchase of the domain for certain markets and certain users, can we default them into the free trial, like attach it automatically, default them into it, encourage them to start places where we had more confidence. And we had negotiated with like CX and others, like this sort of narrow band of customers that we could target somewhat safely. And then with these other audiences, route them somewhere else to these other experiences. And so we built this sort of routing system based on this logic post-purchase, right? And we tested the whole thing in, you know, in the test environment and all that. And then everything looked good and we launched it. And a week later, we learned that we uh, had a bug and we were actually defaulting everybody into the free trial. (laughs) which is exactly the thing we had promised, promised not to do. And of course, like there were huge CX complaints, like, you know, complaints are coming through customer, you know, we've got customers who are like, you jerks, you're shoving your stuff down our throat, right? So we see this spike in complaints, which I'm embarrassed to say is how we realized that it wasn't working as designed in prod, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll say lesson number one, always check your stuff in production. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that it works in test doesn't mean it's going to work in production. (laughs) Absolutely. Sign Um, up for your product once a week. Uh, See how things are going. And something like this, it can be hard, actually. It's um, one of the challenges we happen to have there is like, because domains are actually unique IP, it's not, it's actually hard to test in prod because you have, you you know, for real, right? Because you've got to buy a domain, but that's like an actual thing of value, right? So that was a real challenge that we had in that particular case, you know, but do it, check your stuff in prod because we would have found it a lot faster and we didn't. So it was live for a week. And then I start getting these calls from customer service and like VPs all over the company who are like, how can you people do this? Right. And then, of course, it actually took us several more days to actually figure out how to fix it. We couldn't just turn this off because of some other technical nonsense in the back, right? I mean, ideally, there's some feature flag and you just roll it back. We couldn't. So it was several more days of like scrambling with every executive, like breathing down my neck, just like fix it, fix it. How could you let this happen? So we get it fixed. We end up sort of turning it off for everybody, you know, but get back to some baseline and then I embarked on what I will call the great apology tour 
<laughs> inside the company <laughs> where I just went stakeholder to stakeholder and groveled and just, just owned it. Like we messed up. I'm so sorry. I take full responsibility. This is my fault. I mean, I, I didn't write the bug, but like, you know, it's my team. Yeah. And so, and I di- also didn't want to throw any of my engineers under the bus or anything like that. Right. It's like, it's a collective failure. We should have done it, but I'm the leader of the team. So, you know, this is my fault. And this is I'm what sorry. you do, right? At least yeah. if you're a, if you're at least a good one, that's what you do. Yes. That's another another lesson I will say like in there is your team because everyone felt it, right? The whole team was like, "Oh my gosh, what have we done?" right? But if you as the leader of the team, you know, as the product manager, you're the leader, whether or not people report to you. And if you step up and take responsibility for the actions, you know, for whatever failures happened, your team will love you for it and you'll get a lot of loyalty. So, you know, don't be put off by the fact that like, well, I didn't do it. It's not my fault, right? Own it. Just own it. And paradoxically, when you step up and own something, even that's outside of your control, you actually grow your influence in a weird way. Like this will actually benefit you because that's what leadership is. And that's what management is, is having responsibility for things that are outside of your direct control. That's part of it. Couldn't agree more. So when you start displaying that behavior, others will notice it and actually reward you for it. I know it sounds weird, but it's true. And I learned it, you know, by by taking a risk and doing it in, in situations like this and stepping up and saying this, I'm sorry, this is my fault. I should have prevented this. Let's look at what happened, do the retro, figure out what we could have done differently. All right, lesson learned. We should have checked in prod you know, and commit to doing better next time. And I just went around to every single stakeholder and groveled. And it's also very disarming when people are upset instead of getting defensive, which there's always sort of, it's a human nature thing to just want to be like, kind of defend yourself in that situation. Because some of these executives were really pissed because this, this like issue around the complaints had been going on and resolving these complaints was, you know, was a top priority. And here I just made it worse. Exactly. Not only you have probably to defend the hypothesis to get it through, but then due to this screw up, I can I can really imagine it going like, yeah, I told them that this would happen and all of that bad vibe. That's exactly right. There were definitely executives um, kind of over on the CX side who were like, we shouldn't be doing this at all. You know, we should just turn this thing off. And, you know, here I drove this spike in spike in complaints through this bug, which just adds fuel to that fire. So we got it fixed. We get back in business. And then it was another month later where me and and some of the other product folks decided to go look and see what happened. So we, we, we had this week where we were exposing everybody to this offer and we noticed actually in our net results, we noticed actually mm-hmm. this lift in people buying the product, converting from free trial. Like our average sort of daily unit conversion, you know, had gone up and we're, you know, we're like, what happened? So we went back and realized that this week that we <laughs> showed the offer to everybody actually drove a lot of units. Yes, it drove complaints, but it also drove a lot of units. And the unit, the unit conversion to me, conversion means your customer liked your product, right? Assuming you're not doing any dark patterns. And this wasn't yeah. at all. This is like no credit card required free trial. 
the people that converted and bought the product were people that built a website and were happy with that website and wanted to keep it. And so they converted and paid us, right? Yeah. Um, which is what you want, right? And, you know, and there was no spike in cancel, you know, in, in refunds or cancellations or something like that. These were happy customers. So what that proved to me was there's actually latent demand for the product in this channel, like a lot. I mean, our numbers were like double what they normally were for that time. So the demand was there and we just had to figure out the right experience and the right targeting to find the customers that did want the product and not annoy the customers that didn't want the product. So it actually, at the end of the day, gave us tremendous insights, you know, and confidence that there was this upside and this was worth going after and continuing to iterate and test and figure this out. And it wasn't, we hadn't tipped, you know, that line where we're shoving this thing down people's throats who didn't want it. Certainly not everybody wanted it, but twice as many people wanted it as we're getting it in that control experience. I find it fascinating. (laughs) Sorry for the interjection. I I find it fascinating that uh, you went back to look at the facts and you went back to look at the data. It was a month after. So that is way after maybe the apology tour was over. So were you just trying to look at the data and exploring uh, occasionally or was this intentional to go and and really validate the impact in a factual, non-emotional way? Yeah, some of each. You know, we're fairly disciplined about watching our units and watching the trends, right? So we had these regular weekly and monthly reviews of the data where we look at, you know, signups and conversions and, and trends by channel. And this was what our biggest channel. So it was part of our regular practice to, to look at what happened. And it takes a month to kind of see what really happens because this is a free trial model and we see most of our conversions over that month. So the timing was, you know, kind of natural timing. And it was a month later when we saw, wow, here's, you know, a whole bunch of these the conversions are, you know, we converted units are up. What happened? And it's always a lot of work to go and dig and understand why, right? Was the traffic coming in spiked for some reason? Like, you know, what happened? In this case, it was really obvious that it was because of this very stark, you know, inadvertent experiment that we had run <laughs> that the units were from. And then we just had to, you know, dig in there and really sell this internally to help everyone, all the stakeholders understand that there's sort of this silver lining and this opportunity, you know, and get everyone on board with the idea that like, no, these are happy customers that want the product. (laughs) (laughs) Let us keep trying. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, exactly. But then you have the data, it's so much easier. It's so easy to block an experiment or something. And that is oftentimes it takes longer to convince someone to run an experiment to a small cohort of users than it takes to actually run the experiment and analyze the data. Yep. Yep. And then if you do, it makes your life much easier either to yeah give up or continue, right? Yeah. The easy thing to do here would have been sweep it all under the rug, you know, not bring it up again, right? Absolutely. And kind of cave to, you know, cave to the opinions of some of the executives who were tired of hearing about these complaints. But having, going back and looking at the data objectively, you know, helped us overcome that and, you know, and get the momentum to continue, continue experimenting. Good and stuff. Yeah, here's so here's the punchline actually of this as far as sort of like how this can have a, a paradoxically good effect on your career. So some months later, 
a woman, a peer of mine who was responsible for this domain purchase path for this whole, you know, the whole experience, she was going out on maternity leave and I was the person tapped to cover her and own this thing that I had broken (laughs) 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 while she was out on maternity leave. So I ended up taking over kind of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't technically a promotion, but like, you know, given this additional responsibility to take over this extremely important, you know, experience and channel for the whole company. And I believe it was because I was willing to step up and kind of own the mistakes. And also probably because in my journey through all of this, I had learned more about that channel, you know, than most other people in the company, because I had to dig in and really tear it apart and understand what's going on. So you can earn a lot of trust by owning your mistakes, you know, or the mistakes of your team or the things that happen, and then, and then not sweeping them under the rug. There you go. And I just met this week someone that got fired because of a false start, which is the stupidest thing that you can do because, you know, all the learnings will go away with this person. Anyway, but there's more, right? This wasn't the only time you uh, you actually had to own the consequences of your actions. I'm not going to say mistakes. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the next one that you brought today. Oh, I've broken all kinds of things in my career. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so working on the same product, the website builder product, there was another instance where, yes, we, we broke something and paid some consequences and got some, some learnings out of that. And in this case, fairly early on in developing, kind of developing the onboarding and and growth communications and free trial motions and things for this product, we were being pretty scrappy. Uh, this is some years ago. There weren't a lot of the sort of off-the-shelf tools. And we were this little tiny thing in this big company and didn't get a lot of support necessarily from some of the teams, you know, outside of the product team to help us with these things. So one of the things we needed to do was develop onboarding emails and free trial conversion emails. And the email team didn't really have capacity to help us do too much of that. Our volume was too small, frankly, to, to kind of make it up the priority list. So we kind of, you know, being little scrappy people that we were, we're like, we can do this. We're just going to build it ourselves. We're going to work around these corporate systems and not wait for, you know, marketing email teams to get around to helping us. We're just going to hack it. So we ended up building our own product triggered onboarding series and and sort of email conversion lifecycle emails in a hackathon. So we built the underlying system for it in a hackathon And then the product team maintained that and we would set up the rules to trigger these emails from within the product, which, you know, worked. It was definitely like a little janky, but like it worked. So we just kept that and we got a lot of pressure from corporate types to migrate into the corporate system. So we could could track it all and all that stuff. And we just resisted all that because we were like, look, it's working we have control ourselves. We can iterate without having to go through you people, right? So we insisted on staying in our, on our little hacky homegrown system because it gave us control. And we were all proud of ourselves for hacking around these limitations. I can imagine, like celebrating. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to send that to Marketo or whatever system it is. Exactly. We don't need no stinking, you know, corporate. <laughs> we got it all figured out. Ha, look at us go fast. And that was all fine and good until, (laughs) once again, by looking 
at our data, we were looking at results. And in this time, instead of seeing our converted units with a sudden spike, we saw a dramatic dip. So we're looking at the results and the analyst comes to me and she's like, Heidi, we got a problem. She's like, I don't know what's going on. There's this sudden dip in converted units. It's like 25% down. Wow. And she had been tearing out her hair, God bless this woman, trying to figure out what was going on. So she'd like looked, it was you know, incoming traffic. Was there, you know, what was it? And she couldn't figure out. There was nothing obvious in the data that correlated back to like to this drop in conversions that was fairly sudden. And she was able though, you know, she she kind of cohorted out the, you know, the different sort of sign-up cohorts. And we were able through some analysis to finally figure out there was sort of a moment in time across these cohorts, right, that we could see. That took a little bit of math, a little bit of effort and math because, so we'd look at sort of after X days of sign-up, you know, mm-hmm. what percentage are converting. Yeah. And we weren't necessarily used to looking at like, as of, you know, on February 18th, across all the cohorts, what was going on with convert, right? So it took us a bit to figure out that it was something that happened at a point in time and affected all the cohorts, right? It, although it was even a little more complicated than that, right? So it, it took us a week to figure out that, in fact, our little homegrown hacky email system had broken and we were not sending conversion emails to people in free trial. And that uh, resulted in an immediate drop in converted units, which, as I'm sure you can all imagine, um, did not go over well. <laughs> with <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> in the business. So then there was another scramble to figure out how to fix this and get it back in business. And, you know, that, of course, turned out to be slightly trickier than we thought because, you know, it was a hack on top of a hack that couldn't easily be rolled back that, you know, caused this whole thing. It wasn't something simple. And there were many, you know, retros to be had in terms of, okay, how do we prevent this in the future? And how do we have better visibility into this? And why is the product team allowed to hack their way around our email systems, right? And all those things. So we did eventually, you know, get back in business and kind of get back to run, right? You know, those lost units were lost. There's no way to kind of go back and, and get those. I mean, we, you know, we kind of tried, but it was what it was. And we certainly learned some things. Uh, you know, some of the lessons I took away from that experience were one, like, if you're going to do hacks and in growth, we're going to do hacks. Like, let's just face it. Like, exactly. If we didn't do some hacks, There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. If we didn't do some hacks, we'd be waiting forever. So I don't want to discourage anyone out there from like, well, let's hack it up and see if we can prove this out. Right. But I definitely learned the hard way that if you do that, go back and like productize those hacks. Like you as the product manager have the responsibility, not just to get stuff out the door, but the quality of what ships is your responsibility to. And if something's important, don't let it keep, you know, and it's being held together with duct tape and glue, don't stand for that, right? And you need to have the discipline to make space for that in your roadmap, you know, or as the product leader negotiating, you know, with corporate systems or whatever you need to do to get that hack, if it's critical, you know, if this is in, if this is mission critical, and in this case it was, 
Yeah, productize it. To productize that, yeah. Yeah, it makes total sense. One thing that I take from here is the impact of a, a life cycle email stream because I mm-hmm. could never prove. Uh, like we, we all do them, but uh, yeah, if you want to test it, there you go. Turn it off for a week and see what happens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because it's really, it's really hard to prove that it works. Uh, I was at least not able until now to get that hard evidence. But anyway. Yeah, that was one silver lining. Similarly, it's really difficult to actually measure the lift of you know, your emails. And certainly a lot of us have been in the position where we get pressure from, say, ECX or others, like less emails, people complain about emails, like we send too many emails. Turning off those emails was a 25% drop in revenue. Yeah, well, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not the same for every context, but definitely worth trying out uh, and measuring if you can. So the last one was an interesting one. Yeah, just tell us a little bit. I know it's um, about a transition from a freemium to model to a free trial. What happened there? It's an, <laughs> another one of those massive stories. Yeah. Yeah, this this one was also this was a fun one. So I mentioned that we had a free trial model with our product. And we had already changed from a credit card required free trial to a mm-hmm. no credit card required free trial. And we had to go through a, a fairly elaborate sort of testing roadmap, you know, in order to ensure that we got to break even on that. You know, this is a, a sizable company and we couldn't risk, we couldn't take a lot of risk with revenues. In the growth team, we had a hypothesis that freemium would actually outperform free trial in terms of net converted units and you know happy customers. And we also believe that there were additional benefits from freemium, like better virality. So with the it's a website builder, right? And with a free trial, if they don't convert at the end of that month of free trial, the website goes away. Whereas with freemium, there would be a a growing sort of bank of, of published websites that got some amount of traffic that could be viral acquisition for us. So we thought that was you know additional benefit that would pay off over time. We knew it would take some time to prove that out because we knew that the time to convert would change with freemium versus free trial. And we had some data that suggested that kind of revenue per user, what tiers they choose, you know, might change, right? So we did the modeling to figure out what those kind of breakpoints were between free trial and freemium and convinced ourselves and, you know, and our leaders that this might be worth doing and also broke down the different hypotheses that we would need to test in order to prove this out. Because there was risk in several axes, right? There was the the, you know, could we get as many converted units was certainly number one goal. And our belief was we could get more, but managing costs was also a, a big challenge. So we gave free support. There's free unlimited support as part of part of the product. And that's part of the, the brand promise of the whole company. And they'd never had a freemium product before. So in this case, it was okay, we either kind of break the brand promise and don't have free unlimited support, which would have been a whole new thing to do, you know, or we keep this promise of unlimited free support for freemium, in which case, you know, we risk sinking the company because those costs could balloon out of control, right? So, totally. yeah. So one of the hypotheses we had to, to test and prove was that 
support costs would not break the budget if we have this for freemium users versus free trial. We also need to prove out like conversion curve. We needed to prove out, you know, all, kind of all the math around that. Um, we need to figure out this virality component. So it was, it was a pretty complicated model with multiple changes. Mm-hmm. And it's also true that every test would take some time. It would take maybe six months before you knew if your conversions were break even and you knew what support costs were going to be, right? So we did all, all this math and modeling and all this stuff and then kind of got permission to t- start taking some small risks and putting cohorts of signups into this freemium experience and leaving well, and letting them bake over time to watch what happened at the same time that we would compare them to people in the control free trial model. And there's a lot of seasonality in this business too. So it was important that we had cohorts, you know, kind of in the same signups that signed up at the same time that we would bake these off and watch them. So we started putting a cohort in and you'd have to wait six months to figure out, to find out really what happened. And the first one was a loser. Didn't convert as well, but support costs at least were actually lower than the people in the free trial. So that was actually nice. Like, okay, we've got some confidence maybe here on the support cost one at least. But we weren't getting the conversions that we wanted to see for a number of reasons. So we tried to analyze that. We, we got a lot of pushback, like, hey, this premium thing is just a bad idea. We're not going to make this work. You guys are putting a lot of effort into this. Like, we need you to prioritize other things. But we, we were still believers. So we got permission to do another round. So we tore apart the results of what had happened in this first test, which was a loser. And by the way, I'll remind you, like, doing these tests, it's not just the test is a loser. It's those are real units that we could have gotten for the company, right? That we put into that test. So, and there's a leap of faith for some of the executives that this is going to be worth it when you take these risks, right? So we didn't just have blanket permission to test anything we wanted and, you know, risk revenue, which we were doing. Yeah. The test was a cost effectively could be seen as a cost. Yeah. Yeah. Or an inefficiency in, in, in conversion rate. To, yeah. To and there's, you know, there's belief, like you got to take some risks to make some, get some learnings because maybe they're, yeah. you know, that's how you find the upside too. Right. Yeah. True. But you know, a lot of people weren't believers in the hypothesis and, uh, and this first one was, was a loser and it was also a lot of effort. So we had to really push hard to get the opportunity to try again. But we made some changes to the experience, actually mostly around the emails that we were sending out to freemium users and the timing and things like that. Because we had, you know, when we started, we didn't have any emails that we'd send after day 30 related to conversion because that's what we had. So we had a hypothesis that if we kind of kept going with these campaigns, you know, past that time that we would, we would be able to get more, get a longer tail of, of conversions. So we built that out. We tried again and it lost again. But we got a little further. <laughs> we saw we saw some pockets when we really broke it down. We saw some segments of users that were actually outperforming. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, we made progress. Okay, great. So then we got permission, you know, and, and we kept trying. It took us three years wow. of rounds of trying. And your initial expectation was how long? Like I knew it was gonna take a while, just the nature. Anytime you're doing these kind of price or business model changes at some scale where you have to like de-risk it, 
it's going to take a long time. And I've gotten the question of how can you go faster on those? And sometimes you just can't. I don't think we could have gone faster. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could have gotten new cohorts into test a little faster, but yeah, I, I, it's just a slog. I, I think that's sometimes, sometimes these like happy stories about growth stuff and PLG, right. Of like looking at, at the winners, I think overstate how easy it is. This ended up being a winner. Ultimately we got to break even and we went to freemium and it's freemium today. And then we built on that and it's gotten better and better, but it was not clear at all that this was going to be a winner for years. And there was a real tax to be paid. And we had to like really lean on, on a couple enthusiastic executives, you know, to help us kind of get permission to keep taking these risks. And you're, is it fair to say that you mentioned in the beginning, I got the idea that you thought with maybe two rounds, two, three rounds, you would get to something, but it Three years is uh, what? Uh, two, four, six rounds, right? It's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was definitely optimistic, more optimistic at, at the beginning that we would get there faster. And definitely, you know, when I was promoting the idea, you know, you always have to go sort of sell your ideas internally. And, and I was kind of the spokesperson. I'd go out and like sell everyone and how awesome this was going to be and the values of all of this. Certainly set expectations that we would be delivering value a lot faster than we did. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that I learned the hard way as well. <laughs> Setting expect, I get so excited with things and then I oversell it. Not with bad intent, not trying to manipulate people, but then, yeah, we should be cautious. Yeah, I learned that the hard way as well. Anyway, it's not about me. So after this three-year thing, you got something positive about it. It's still there today. That's great. You had some painful moments there. And um, so... I hope people take these and get inspired by these, or at least get some feeling of, um, I wasn't the only one uh, <laughs> going this route. But what what are the top like two or three learnings of all of this, if you can sum them up? Absolutely. A little paranoia is helpful. <laughs> I, I've definitely learned to assume something will go wrong. I don't know what, but something's going to go wrong. And it's more important to be prepared to react when something goes wrong and have a playbook of how you're going to handle yeah. that, both the like human side of dealing with angry people and also on the sort of technical side of like, okay, how are we going to approach this to figure out what we need to fix and get it fixed? And, you know, it's more important to be prepared for something to go wrong than to try hard up front, you know, to prevent anything from going wrong. Understood particularly in growth. Like our job is to go fast and, you know, the whole go fast and break things like, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. So managing that um, and expecting it and managing expectations around it is helpful. Also managing your own emotional reaction to mistakes. And it's super natural. Like it's human nature when something like this happens where you're, you're embarrassed and defensive and don't want to kind of admit, you know, no one wants to admit that they screwed up, but set that aside, make yourself like take that, acknowledge it and just set it aside and lean into instead owning it, fall on a sword for your team. If you have to, it's worth it. Trust me, you know, make yourself take the accountability and take responsibility for it and just own it and it will pay off. And if, if you get punished for that, then you're working for the wrong person. That would be my opinion. 
There you go. Be paranoid, work for the right person or be the right person to work for. Thank you so much, Heidi, for, for this conversation. It was really insightful and I hope folks will, uh, will enjoy it as well. I have a couple of questions for you before we go. If people want to follow up and ask more, where can they find you online? Sure. LinkedIn is probably the best. Heidi Gibson, uh, currently VP product growth at Bill. Um, pretty easy to find. I also host a podcast called Product Talk for products that count. So I've got a few episodes out there and more coming. So if you want more musings from me and my guests, you're welcome to, to have a listen there. That's probably the best places. Awesome. We'll add those to the show notes so people can grab the links. And the last one is, can you share like one, two, three growth frameworks, tools, resources that you've seen either lately or recently that, you know, come to mind? Oof. Here's a couple things in, in no specific order. One is Reforge. I'm definitely a fan of Reforge. I Same started here. taking classes there at the very beginning. And today I contribute case studies and, um, and have helped uh, as a host for some of the courses. I found the Reforge approach to be extremely helpful, helping everyone involved have this a common language and kind of understanding and, and approach for breaking down opportunities. So big fan of Reforge. Also, a couple things, I'll say these are more sort of mantras, personal approaches. One, I'll reiterate, when you're not sure what to do, ask yourself, how can we deliver more value to the customers we have? Or how can we deliver that value to more people? Mm -hmm. So that depth and breadth. I like to think about the opportunity along those two dimensions for growth. And if you can find answers to those questions, then you've got yourself you know, a hypothesis and something to go on. Of opportunities to work for, yeah. To work. yeah. And if you can't answer those questions, go talk to some customers. <laughs> Good point. And maybe one last thing I've learned along the way is, is kind of work backwards. So when you're trying to find your growth metrics, your growth opportunities, start with happy retained customers. You know, okay, who's happy in retaining today? And then work backwards from there and say, okay, you know, who are these people? What happened along the way? What did they do to find, can I find more of these people, you know, or where did I lose people that should have been happy retained customers along the way? That's a way to find friction, but starting there versus, you know, versus sort of starting at the top of the funnel. Very cool. Thank you so much, uh, Heidi, for this. It was a blast having you and I will continue to follow uh, you and Reforge uh, religiously. Thank you so much and have a good uh, weekend. Mario, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. You have a great weekend too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. <laughs> and if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.